You're listening to a Big Finish production. Doctor Who Short Trips An Ocean of Sawdust by Paul Starkey Read by Stephen Critchlow The boy huddled alone on the raft. The raft bobbed alone in an ocean of churning brown waves. Aside from his clothes, all the boy possessed was a sheet to protect him from the elements. But there were no clouds in the pale, sunless sky above. No extremes of heat or cold to concern him. Perhaps he could have used the sheet as a sail, if he'd had something to fashion a mast from. And if there'd been any wind. There wasn't so much as a breeze. The air was still. If it wasn't for the waves gently moving the raft, he might have been becalmed. There was only one boy. There was only one raft. But there were other things. In the sky, high above, birds wheeled and swooped, though they didn't descend towards the boy on the raft. These birds lived at altitude. They fed and slept and mated at altitude. To them, the surface of the ocean was like the sky to a caveman. They were conscious of it, but they didn't understand it. And they had no way to reach it until they died, until their wings stopped beating and they dropped. There were other things, not in the sky, not on the surface. The other things lived beneath the waves. They were legion, and they were big. Yet they swam with dangerous grace despite their bulk. These things understood the world beyond their own, the world above the waves. They knew the raft was there, They knew the boy was there, and this knowledge made them hungry. The doctor would have to leave the TARDIS to determine where he was. He had come here, wherever here was, by random chance, an accidental intersection with a kink in the time stream, a temporal riptide of the kind the TARDIS encountered every day. They were really dangerous, and easy enough to escape if you were snagged by one. Sometimes, however, the Doctor chose not to kick away from them. Sometimes he decided to follow, to go with the flow. Perhaps because he was bored, perhaps because he didn't want to decide where to go next, leaving his destination to fate. That had been the crux of his choice this time. Too many decisions he'd had to make lately. Too many more he knew were coming. He didn't want to relax, he didn't want an easy life. He just wanted to be surprised. At his age, as a Time Lord who'd seen and done most things, there was still pleasure in the unexpected. The censors told him it was safe to go outside, but when it came to where and when he was, they were a lot fuzzier. Chronologically, he was anywhere between Earth's 19th and 30th centuries, and physically, He resided within a sphere that was seventy light-years in diameter and had the star Arcturus roughly at its centre. It wasn't unusual for the TARDIS sensors to be on the Fritz. The old girl had been outmoded long before he'd stolen her. You had to expect a few quirks. Still, 
This time he wondered if something else was to blame. Collateral interference from the skirmish that had somehow intruded on real time. Of course, skirmishes were nothing new, and he'd been a participant too many times, but these latest clashes felt different. Feeble claps of thunder that nonetheless seemed to herald a more powerful storm to come. He planned to avoid that storm for as long as possible. Upon opening the door, the first thing he noted was the smell. A mustiness overlaid with the scent of wood, and for a moment he thought it materialised within a forest. It took just two steps to disabuse him of this notion. His boots clicked against bare floorboards. He stared at the floor and smiled. There was something about wood he adored, its ability to be repurposed. Trees hauled down, sawn and lathed, until a forest became a floor. And one day someone might tear up these boards, whittle the wood down until they'd created pawns and knights, kings and queens. A forest becomes a floor, becomes a chess set. He hopped up and down, each strike of his heels like a fist rapping on a door. Knock, knock! Who's there? Get out of the water! The doctor looked up at last. That was not a response he'd ever have expected, and he berated himself for being so easily distracted by the minutiae of the universe. That's what I get for craving the unexpected, he thought. It took a moment to locate the voice's origin, because the room was so cavernous, like a ballroom. The walls so distant, it would take at least a minute to reach them. The ceiling, arching high above, plastered cornices embossed with faded gold. There were obviously windows, but purple velvet drapes prevented him from seeing them. It reminded him of a visit to Russia in the 1950s, a sumptuous room in what had once been a Tsar's palace, but which, after the revolution, had been reimagined as a typing pool where dozens of young women sat hammering away on typewriters, the click-clack of their keystrokes echoing through the air. It had sounded almost magical, like the clamour of a thousand poets weaving a million stories, rather than the noise of warrants and confessions being forged, of fates being sealed. There were no typewriters here, no desks or chairs or secretaries, there wasn't a stick of furniture but for a bed, off in the distance. And sat atop that bed was a small boy. He closed the TARDIS door and took a handful of steps towards the bed. Hello, he shouted amiably. I'm the doctor. I don't care who you are, the boy cried back, and neither will they. Just get out of the water and back on your boat before they come. The doctor was still smiling though there was a slight quiver to the corners of his lips now. He glanced down, saw wood beneath his feet. He looked around. He saw no danger. There were ornate doors here and there, but they seemed firmly shut. Chandeliers hung from the ceiling, like diamond earrings, flooding the room with light. There were no shadows where danger might sculpt. And yet, the boy sounded terrified. The doctor took another step towards him. The boy cried out once more. This time, the doctor sensed danger. It was unfocused, indeterminate, but he felt it. For a moment, he considered stepping back inside the TARDIS, but then he thought about the boy, 
and he took another step forwards. Even as his right foot touched down, that step became something else, something instinctive. He pushed off once more, throwing his body forward at the same time. His shoulder struck the floor and he rolled, awkwardly, painfully. Looking back, the floor where he had been standing just moments before erupted as a creature burst through, a slithering eel-like form rearing up like the time-lapsed film of a sapling bursting forth from the earth. And then the doctor realised that the eel hadn't burst through the floor. The eel was the floor. Its skin was made of wood, and what he'd taken for wetness was just the varnished grain of those floorboards. The eel had risen three-quarters of the way to the ceiling now, meaning it was perhaps twice the height of the TARDIS, and still part of it was concealed within the floor, so he had no idea how big it truly was. The doctor glanced at the point of entry. He couldn't determine where the floor ended and the thing began. In what he took to be the eel's head, a crack appeared within the wood, not splitting open to reveal a mouth, a gaping maw so wide that the creature's head had to expand to contain it. And then the eel slipped the bonds of the floor, separated from it, leaving bare floorboards in its wake. The doctor lay there, propped up by his elbows as he watched the creature float further into the air. It emitted a noise, a squeal born from a throat made of wood, a scream propelled by lungs filled with sawdust. It was a rough, raw sound, the groan of a falling tree. And then the eel dove, its mouth engulfing the TARDIS, swallowing the Doctor's most trusted companion whole before it seemed to smash through the floor once more, taking the TARDIS with it. No! screamed the Doctor, a hand reaching uselessly towards the tail of the creature before it was subsumed by the ground. And then there was quiet. Stillness. The floor where the eel had emerged looked unmarked. The floor where the TARDIS had stood similarly intact. But the TARDIS was nowhere to be seen. Hurry! Swim towards me! The boy's shout shattered the paralysis that had held the doctor mesmerised. He scrambled to his feet. He didn't turn towards the boy on the bed, though. Instead, he took a step towards where the TARDIS had stood his mind still unwilling to believe what he'd seen. This way! It wasn't the boy's cry that made him turn and run. Instead, it was the sight of something undulating within the floor. Something that slithered within the wood. No, not something. Some things. There was more than one of them. He ran. That's it! Swim faster! Faster! The doctor had no time to wonder about the surreal command. If the boy came from a species whose words for run and swim had been mixed up, he'd soon know. All he had time to hope was that the bed would provide shelter from the eels that slithered within the floor. It was a ridiculous notion, a preposterous idea of safety, but he ran anyway. He didn't look back, but he felt the eels pursuing felt their movements transmitted through the floor and up through the soles of his boots. But rather than egg him on, the feeling made him sluggish, as if the vibrations caused by the creatures were living tendrils pulling him back. 
He was close to the bed now, but that was when he saw the floor change. For a second, he imagined an eel was about to burst through. For a moment, he feared all was lost. And then, his adrenaline-fueled brain realized that what he was seeing was a moth-eaten Persian rug, woven from red and cream fabric. He had a second to laugh at his foolishness before his left foot snagged the edge of the rug and he fell. His hands broke his fall, but it still hurt. He muttered a curse, but then his senses warned him of danger once more, and he rolled to the side even as the rug rose up into the air. An eel, composed of weave and fibres rather than wood, reared up this time. It was a much smaller creature. A baby, he mused. But then he had no more time to wonder. The eel danced into the air, mouth splitting wide, tail wagging in greedy anticipation. The doctor was a few steps from the bed, and he was half-risen in a crouch, and in the end this positioning saved him. Without a second thought, he sprang for the bed. Even as he leapt through the air, he felt a rush of wind as the eel dove towards him. This is it, he thought. All those centuries, all those foes, and I'm going to be eaten by a snake made of carpet. He bounced against the mattress, hitting it so hard that springs dug into his side. He turned to look back, pulling his legs towards his chin, afraid of dangling them over the side of the bed. A childhood fear, a childhood recollection tickling his memory. The doctor sat up. He looked around, seeing no sign of any creature. He peered nervously over the side of the bed, one eye closed, as if this might somehow protect him. The rug was back in place. He sat back and looked at the boy. I was laughing. The youngster nodded. When you jumped for the bed, you were laughing, like you'd just heard the funniest joke ever. Well, sometimes if you don't laugh, you have to cry. And I never did like crying very much. He grinned and stuck out his hand. Now, as I was saying, I'm the doctor. The boy was named Samuel, but he didn't seem to know more about himself than this. He was eight or nine years old, the doctor gauged. Samuel just shook his head when the doctor asked, and wore candy-striped flannel pyjamas. Red, pink and yellow. But they looked so old you could barely tell each striation apart. He had tousled dark hair and wide, adventurous eyes. Oh yes, and he was quite possibly mad. How can you not see the ocean, he said, gesturing towards the floor. The water all around us. I mean, your clothes. They're soaking, surely. The doctor rubbed at the lapel of his jacket. It was dry as a bone. Unless it isn't the boy who's mad. Maybe it's me, he considered. Frankly, that made as much sense as anything else today. He decided to steer the boy away from specifics, for the moment at least. So, how long have you been uh, marooned here? One could, he decided, be just as easily marooned in an empty room as upon an ocean. Samuel shook his head. I don't know. His eyes barely blinked. Now that he was inexplicably safe, the doctor had time to scan the room properly. There wasn't much to see. 
The doors, he'd already noted, remained shut. The many curtains covering the many windows remained closed. The doctor calculated how quickly he could reach the nearest door. The distance was easily twice that of his run from the TARDIS to the bed, so he doubted he could make it before another of those eels rose up from the floor and had him for lunch. Or possibly breakfast. He had no idea what time it was here. The rug he tripped over was the only carpeting. The air still smelled like a pine forest, and there were no sounds aside from those made by him and the boy. The ceiling was high. Beyond the chandeliers there was only one other item of note, a flock of birds that danced above their heads. The mobile hung on a long piece of cord, the dark silhouettes of the birds much lower than the chandeliers. Still probably out of reach, though. Are you really a doctor? He looked at the boy. I'm really the doctor, he said with a wink. The boy just frowned. So you've no idea how long you've been here? Another shake of the head. And you don't remember where you were before here? The boy cocked his head to one side, like a sparrow. I remember bits and pieces. I was travelling, I think, with Mum and Dad. We were on a ship, a, a really big ship. Do you remember the name of the ship? No. Did it have sails or engines? Were there funnels? Uh, chimneys, I mean. Samuel looked perplexed. Chimneys? In space? Oh, it was a spaceship. Now we're getting somewhere, thought the doctor. Do you remember anything else? Did the ship have gravity? Were you in cryosleep? I mean, were you asleep during the voyage? He had more questions, but he managed to stop them before they tumbled out. Samuel already looked overawed. There was gravity. We didn't float. Well, not till the end. The end? A nod. I remember now. I, I was in the park. Me and Dad were playing cricket. Uh, do you know what that is? The doctor smiled. I do indeed. Used to be quite the demon bowler once. I always liked fielding. I liked standing out on my own. Gave me time to think. And you were fielding? At the end, I mean. Yes. It was night outside the dome. It was always night. But there were lights fixed inside the dome, so it was always daylight. The doctor nodded. He was accumulating pieces of the puzzle. Samuel was human, and judging by what he was saying, he'd been aboard some kind of generational starship, a craft that had likely set sail before Samuel was born, and likely would have reached its destination long after Samuel had died. That narrowed the time frame down. The doctor looked up at the mobile. Something about it was familiar as well. The ghost of a memory was nibbling at the back of his mind, like a mouse gnawing at some cheese. So, it was daylight, and you were playing cricket. And then? Samuel looked at him solemnly. It never ceased to amaze the doctor how old or how serious a child could look sometimes. It was as if, every so often, the time-space continuum contorted, and just for a moment, the mind of an adult sprang back into their childhood self, just long enough for a creature of innocence 
to glimpse the years and hardships ahead. A dad was batting. I remember he hit the ball harder than I'd ever seen him hit it before. Someone yelled six. People cheered. I cheered. <laughs> dad looked embarrassed, and I remembered wondering why. If I'd done that, I'd have been so smug. But then... Then everything changed. Day became night, and night became day. I don't follow. The lights went out. I'd never known that happened before. The lights in the dome ran 27 hours a day. They never went out. And I knew something was very wrong. Samuel frowned. But then the lights came on again. Only so much brighter. So bright that it took a minute to realise that it wasn't the dome lights. This light was outside the ship. Had you been attacked? Was it an accident? The boy shrugged. Don't know. All I remember is suddenly floating. It was like I was falling, only falling up. I cried out for Daddy then. I cried out for Mummy. Cried out for someone to help me, but no one could hear me. Why not? Those unblinking eyes stared up at the doctor. Because everyone else was too busy screaming. The doctor reached forward and placed a hand on Samuel's shoulder. It was a tiny gesture of empathy, and the doctor wished he could do so much more, but right now it was all he had. What happened next, Samuel? Another shrug. Don't remember, but then I was here, on this raft, on this ocean. The doctor's brow furrowed. And you're not hungry or thirsty? Samuel shook his head. I'd like some chocolate, but not because I'm hungry. I just really like chocolate. Do you like chocolate? The doctor smiled. When we get my ship back, I'll take you to Ruvikan Minor. It's the home of the Milky Way's most talented chocolatiers. For the first time since he'd met Samuel, a tiny smile flickered at the corners of the boy's mouth. That's not a real word. It is, and it's a real place, and their chocolate really is scrumptious. The doctor peered over the side of the bed. The floor looked ordinary. He didn't see the eels at first, not until he looked closely, focused so intently that his eyes began to ache, and then he saw the tiny ripples as they passed below the surface. Persistent little devils, aren't you? he whispered. He jumped up. Samuel cried out, Don't rock the boat! Sorry, said the doctor, although in truth rocking the boat tended to be what he did best. He stood still, letting this world wash over him. Sometimes, just for a moment, he swore the scent of pine was replaced by the sting of salt. There was an illusion at work here, that much was certain. But was he being fooled, or was the boy? Either way, something must be causing it, and unless the mechanism was hidden away, which was always possible, then it had to be hiding in plain sight. He looked again around the room, but nothing had appeared in the intervening minutes, which only left. He looked up at the flock of paper birds and grinned. Eureka! Is that another planet? The doctor was pleased to see Samuel was smiling. 
Actually, I know three planets, an asteroid, and an unscrupulous robot bear named Eureka, but that wasn't what I meant. He crouched back down. I know what that is. Samuel looked up. He was frowning again, and the doctor knew that he didn't see the mobile. He explained to Samuel what he saw. It's a psychic comforter. 29th century humans use them to soothe their babies to sleep by reflecting the child's own happiness back at them. I had something like that. Samuel's face contorted. He was concentrating hard, as if the phantom of a memory had returned to him. Above my bed, birds and planets and, and spaceships whirled around me. I used to love looking at it. It always made me happy, made me less afraid. Because it was designed to at least when you were young. But as you got older, most likely your parents deactivated the empathic projectors, left it just as a mobile, a novelty, to remind you of happier times. He was nodding. Yes. Now I understand what's happening here. None of this is real. Not your ocean, nor the room I see. Nor even the eels. They're illusions, projected into our minds by a malfunctioning psychic comforter. Malfunctioning? But you said Mum and Dad turned it off. He was still looking up, still bewildered, because he didn't see what the doctor saw. And so they did. But time passes. Connections degrade, cosmic radiation messes with the biocircuitry, until voila! One psychic comforter turns itself back on again. Only this time, it isn't reflecting the happiness of a small child with limited experience. Oh no, this time, it's reflecting the feelings of a boy who's read so many books and seen so many holovids, whose imagination knows no bounds. Oceans and eels. Perhaps even your memories of the light outside the dome. None of it's real. And if I can just turn that off... He looked up. Gauging the distance. Everything will go back to normal again. Whether the boy believed him or not, it was clear he wanted to. The doctor smiled. I believe so. He was jumping up and down, not very high, just a few centimetres off the mattress. But the experiment proved informative. But how will you... Samuel's question metamorphosed into a cry of alarm as the doctor crouched and then sprang his arms reaching out to grab for the mobile. For a second he thought he'd miss, but then his fingertips snagged one of the birds and, more importantly, the cord it was attached to. Still, as gravity dragged him back, he expected to pull the single bird free, leaving what he was after, the guts of the machine behind. But no. The whole mobile came free of the ceiling, and he grinned with delight as he dropped back down to the mattress. That's what I get for being smug, he thought, as his right foot came down on the edge of the mattress. The doctor and his prize tumbled off the bed and onto the floor. If his experiments in jumping and his leap for the mobile hadn't already confirmed that the gravity here was slightly less than normal, the impact would have proven it. He sensed the eels moving through the floor, knew he had seconds. Samuel was screaming, but the doctor put that out of his mind as he clambered back onto the mattress like a swimmer, scrambling onto a boat to escape a shark. Maybe it was he who was deluded after all. 
He didn't look back when he heard something crash behind him and sensed a monstrous shape rise. Didn't look back as he was showered in sawdust like so many drops of water. Even after he sensed the eel had gone, he remained curled in a ball, clutching the mobile like a comforter. Samuel was still crying out, and for a moment the doctor incorrectly assumed that an eel was still above ground. Finally he peeked. Samuel was on his feet now, jumping up and down and pointing. He was so agitated that it took the doctor a moment to understand what he was shouting about. You're hurting it! Let it go! Let it go! The doctor frowned, until he remembered that he and Samuel were not seeing the same thing. He held the mobile towards him. It's okay, Samuel. This isn't a bird, I promise you. No matter what you can see, no matter what you can hear, this isn't real. It's a machine, that's all. The boy was sobbing. But it's screaming! <laughs> it's in pain! The doctor wanted to reach out to the boy, but to do that he'd have to put the mobile down. This would be the test. If it was what he thought it was, then it would just sit there. But if Samuel was right, and the doctor had been holding a squirming seagull without realising it, then the mobile might well lurch into the air under its own power. He put the mobile down on the bed. It didn't move. You've killed it, yelped Samuel. He was on his knees now, tiny hands clenched into fists, pounding the bedspread. Finally, the doctor reached out, enfolding the small, terrified boy. It's all right. It isn't real, Samuel. It isn't. I promise you. And I can prove it. Samuel pulled away from him. How? By turning it off. He picked up the mobile. As he'd expected, it was a standard design. And whilst it was designed to be operated remotely, there was a manual override. With a flourish, he toggled it. Nothing happened. He toggled it again, and again, and again. You killed the bird for nothing, said Samuel. His ire was gone, though. The racking sobs had taken the wind out of his sails. I don't understand, said the doctor. He was glancing this way and that, expecting the world to shift, expecting walls and wood to be replaced by skies and seas, or by a small child's bedroom on a generational starship. But nothing had changed. He looked at the mobile. He saw plastic and wires and paper. He felt them, but he knew from bitter experience how easily even a Time Lord could be fooled. But the detail was incredible, from the shading of each bird's plumage to the tiny hooks that connected each one to the main body of the mobile. Hooks. Fish hooks. Cold dread reached up and enveloped the doctor, as if it were itself a ravenous eel. He looked at the boy, looked at the world around him, the thought struck home like a boxer's uppercut. If the room and the eels weren't real, then why would the mobile be real? Why would Samuel be real? From somewhere in the depths of his memory, he dredged up a reference to creatures that went by many names, but most of the universe knew them as Kestrins. 
They weren't sentient, but they had an innate cunning and most frightening of all, an inbuilt psychic hunting ability that allowed them to lure their prey as surely as any siren seducing a sailor. Samuel must have noticed something in the doctor's eyes. For a moment, his own sadness was forgotten. Is everything all right? Everything's fine. The lie tripped easily from his tongue. Samuel wasn't real. He was a psychic worm on a psychic hook. The only question was whether he was someone the Kestrians had taken from the doctor's memories or a child who'd once lived and breathed until he encountered the Kestrians, until he was lured to his doom, his body consumed, but his memories, or at least fragments of them, incorporated within the creatures, to be reflected back, tempting more food into their larders. The doctor felt rage burning in his belly. He set it aside. Now wasn't the time. He looked at the ghost of a boy. Do you trust me, Samuel? I don't. I thought I did until you heard the bird. I'm sorry about that. You were right, and I should have listened to you, but I understand now what's happening, and I can fix it. Hope flared in the wide, adventurous eyes of a boy who'd never got to follow his dreams. And I can go home again. Tears did not come often to the doctor, but he felt them forming in the corners of his eyes now. Yes, Samuel, you can go home again. He shifted his position until he was sitting beside him. I'm going to sing you a lullaby, send you to sleep. Okay, Samuel didn't look convinced. And then the doctor began to sing, a gentle, lilting lullaby, from a time long past and a world long gone. And despite his uncertainty, Samuel's eyes began to droop. Why do I feel so sleepy? He said, his words slurred. It's just a song. Except it was so much more than a song. It was an exhortation to the universe for a people who died before their time. A powerful psychic tool that the doctor used sparingly. Eventually, Samuel's eyes closed, and he slumped. The doctor kept singing, knowing it might take a few moments for the lullaby to make its way from the worm up the line and to the fisherman at the other end. Always assuming he was right, because if this didn't work, he was out of options. And then, the bed was gone. The room was gone. There was no raft no ocean. They had never been real except in the mind of a ghost. Only Samuel remained, the child lay sleeping on the ochre sand of a desolate planet. The doctor looked up and saw triple suns barely visible in a hazy yellow sky. Still singing, he reached down and picked the boy up. Then he turned in the direction the TARDIS had once stood, and where it stood again, and between he and his ship were the Kestrians. In their real form, they
they were less like eels and more like stunted grey slugs. They moved, but their squirming was sluggish, because they too were under the power of the lullaby. The doctor knew it wouldn't last. Eventually they would break free, and then reality would shift once more. So, with care but haste, the doctor carried the boy towards the TARDIS. He awkwardly unlocked the door, then hesitated. He looked down at the sleeping boy. There was movement beneath Samuel's eyelids. Could a dream itself dream? Perhaps I'm wrong, thought the doctor. Perhaps he's real after all. He glanced back as something grunted. The Kestrins were moving, shaking off the lullaby. The doctor stepped inside the TARDIS. His arms were empty. He threw the switch that closed the door so hard it almost came loose. He slammed a fist against the console. Vile, evil creatures, stealing lives, then parading them to steal more lives, an endless, vicious cycle. He stared back at the door. In just a few moments, he'd come up with multiple ways he could rid this world of the Kestrins. Ensure they'd never harm anyone again. And not just here. He could, if he chose, ensure they never existed in the first place. Track their origins right back until he could stand on some distant shore and watch as some precursor creature slithered its way out of some ancient sea. And then he could squash that creature beneath his boot. Except he wouldn't do that. Because even if the Time Lords would allow it, the truth was that he was not that kind of a man. Not a warrior. Not a killer. But this didn't mean he was helpless. It took time to scavenge enough parts from distant corners of the TARDIS, but eventually he'd built several psychic boys. He placed two in orbit of the Kestrin's world. The other four he seeded further out in elliptical orbits, the most distant a light year from the planet. The boys would echo a simple message that would consciously and subconsciously warn anyone who got too close. A message older than many stars, but never more relevant than now, in this place, in this time. Here be dragons. 